Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome at The Hub. It's so good to see all of you here tonight. And yes, we are continuing with our sexuality series entitled The Naked Truth. And as Zach and Jess kicked us off last week, I'm going to say exactly the same thing. It is PG-16 tonight. So if you do have any kids with you, please take them upstairs to the kids' church where they will be blessed and have an awesome time with Jesus. If you've got younger children, please take them into the foyer or the mother's room and you can distract them, right? I'm going to have some water because this is one of those sermons. (laughs) So to start off with, maybe you can turn and maybe turn back, uh, back in front so you talk to somebody you don't know that well, and I'm going to ask you to uh, answer this question, to just have a discussion about this question. What group, community, or society would you say you most identify with? So you've got three minutes, go for it. <laughs> anyone, anyone. <laughs> Okay, you've got 30 seconds. (laughs) Okay, you can start bringing that to an end and looking forward. Goodness me, that sounded like quite robust conversation happening, and all of you seem to have something to say about who you most identify with. I wish I could have listened in on each of the conversations and done a bit of a poll to see uh, which community, society, or group won. We're going to come back to what we were talking about here a little later in the sermon. So as I said, we're carrying on with our sexuality series entitled The Naked Truth, and tonight the topic is sexual healing in a broken world. 
Yeah. So you all understand, my family are here tonight, but I forbade my mother from coming, right? Because, you know, there are just some things a grown man does not want to discuss in front of his mom. Um, <clears throat> so, sexual healing in a broken world. And as I was looking at this, I was like, maybe in the world we live in today, there are so many people who are saying, what do you mean? What, why do we need sexual healing? What are you talking about? Now, I am a pastor. I really, really am. <laughs> Lareko can clarify. <laughs> I've actually been ordained, right? <laughs> but I live in this real world, and I live with real people, and I'm the counseling pastor, and so I might get to talk about sex more than any other pastor. For somebody, by the way, who isn't having it, um, but because it really is an issue for Christians. But I'm also living in this world where I can see what's happening around us, and I watch Netflix. And if any of you watch Netflix, you know that recently there have been a whole lot of documentaries coming out about how sex is awesome, we should all be po sex positive, we should just be able to do whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, and it's really okay, and just protect yourself and it'll be fine, you know? And that is not the truth of the Bible. So there's all these narratives out there that you can be anything, do anything, anything. As long as it gives you pleasure and you want to do it, go for it. There's also a narrative out there that that's being sex positive. And then there's a narrative that says Christianity and the Bible are sex negative. But that is such a lie. Why? Well, sex is all God's idea. God came up with the idea of sex all by himself. He had a blank slate. There was nothing. If he had decided that he'd like pink, glittery, jelly beings with three heads and 92 feet, he could have just made them. He had a totally blank slate. But he came up with this world we know. He created this world. And what's so fascinating to me is if you read in the book of Genesis, the six days of creation, at the end of the day, the Lord says this. He looks over what he's done in that day. What does he say? It's good. On the last day, the sixth day, he creates you and I. And what does he say on the sixth day? He says something a little different. It's very good. Think about that for a minute. When he made you and me, when he made human beings, he said it is very good. Not just good, very good. And he has a fascinating thing about that sixth day. Every other day, God created. On the sixth day, he made, he formed. Every other day, God spoke and birds appeared, light appeared, skies appeared, water appeared. But on the sixth day, he gets down into the dust, and with his very own hands, he forms us. He makes us. Creation and being made are two different things. He made us out of the dust of the earth. Do you know that that means that God's fingerprints are all over you? Have you ever touched clay? I always used to think, wow, he touched me, my finger, his fingerprints on me. But I, recently, I was working with clay, and I realized, oh my gosh, we got all over his hands. How awesome is that? And there's this lie that we believe as Christians that somehow sex, our sex drive, is dirty. 
We think that's a problem. In fact, whole cults have been started saying that the original sin was sex. Utter nonsense. God formed these physical bodies. Our bodies are not dirty. Our sex drive is not dirty. God gave you a sex drive. Every one of you have it, whether you want it or not. As I said in the deliverance sermon I preached a while ago, I cannot cast you out of you. And there are people who come to my room and say, can you just pray for God to take away my sex drive? I'm like, I'm sorry. If we did that, you wouldn't be you. You would not be you. And so our sex drive is not dirty. The purpose of the sex drive is it brings us together so that we can fill the earth with more people who will love God and worship Him. There's nothing dirty about it. But our bodies are not dirty. Every single tissue, every single cell of your body, every organ of your body was lovingly invented, thought up, manufactured, and then made into you by a very loving kind and gracious Father. And here's where I'm getting to, and I'm so glad my mom is not here tonight, because your genitalia, your sex organs, are not dirty. And I'm going to say these words in church because they need to be said in church a lot more. Your penis and vagina is not dirty. It is fearfully and wonderfully made by an awesome God who loves us. And they will serve us through our lives with many good things. Now, can you think, and this is not a discussion, <laughs> can you think of one single body organ whose sole purpose is pleasure? It's a lot more, lot more comment in here than there has been in the last service I preached. Okay, so I don't know what you were thinking about, but what I'm talking about is this organ in our brains that God created. It's called the nucleus accumbens. It is known as the pleasure center of the brain. Its sole purpose is to process pleasure. Why? Well, the point of the nucleus accumbens is to keep us doing all the things that are essentially necessary to keep human life flourishing and thriving on this planet. And it does that, it motivates us in that way by releasing dopamine and other chemicals and hormones that give us that sense of well-being, that flush of euphoria, right? And so, what are the things it rewards with dopamine? Drinking water, eating, sex. Can you see sex is in that list? Do you realize when you drink water, dopamine floods your system? It feels so good, and we all know that's true. I wonder if when you have to pee really hard, and you finally do, if dopamine floods your system. I haven't checked that out. I think, it, I think that's where it happens, is in your dopamine system. <laughs> Eating food is in that list, and then there's sex. And you see, this is another lie that exists in the world, that sex, that climax, that orgasm is the, most ex thing, the highest, greatest thing a human being can possibly experience when water and eating food do the same thing. And sex is amazing. It's incredible. But jogging does it. Laughing out loud with a good friend, hugging your mom, looking at a sunset, having an experience. They do exactly the same thing, petting your dog. Coffee. 
but that's maybe more of an addiction, which you don't want to get into. It does happen in your nucleus accumbens, though. <laughs> We love coffee in this house. It's one of our values, right, Jonathan? It really is. And so why am I talking to you like this? Because we cannot get away from the fact that sex is pleasurable. Now, who invented it? He wanted it to be pleasurable. In fact, when it comes to penises and vaginas, God went completely overboard with the number of um, nerve endings he put there to prove that it should be pleasurable. Now get this, men have 4,000 nerve endings. Women have 8,000. Does God have a favorite? I feel like it's true. We're going to have to ask him some questions when we get to heaven. God wants sex in marriage to be pleasurable. He really does. And let's be honest, if sex wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't even need to have the sermon series, right? And so God gave us a very good gift. Sex is a good gift. And God gave it freely. Now, he knew exactly what we would do with it. He knew how we would pervert it and mess it up and make a thing that he gave us that is supposed to enhance intimacy in marriage, whose natural habitat is exclusively marriage, because that's where the greatest intimacy in our lives will live, the greatest responsibility of our lives, but the greatest intimacy of our lives. He knew what we would do with it. And the very thing that was supposed to enhance relationship and connection and intimacy, the world has taken and made it into a thing that actually destroys connection and intimacy. But he gave it to us in any case, because for you and I as Christians, God wants us to be responsible with what he gave us. He wants us to understand the purpose for which he gave it and then to honor that. And it's our choice. And so sex is actually about connection, commitment, covenant, faithfulness. Without these things, we will never understand true intimacy. Do you know that the real issue of sex is that it's a prophetic picture of Jesus and his church? There are certain passages in the Old Testament that the prophets, when they prophesy about who God is, and they use these terms, these images of fire, and in the original language, they have a sexual intensity to them. English just can't bring that out. It's a metaphorical picture, but it's like the burning passion of God for his people. And so sex is a picture, that sexual longing that sometimes can come on us, is a picture of how God wants us. And think of the climax of ages. Goodness me, that got dramatic. Um, <laughs> of the climax of ages, when Jesus dies on a cross to make that longing come true, when he rises from the dead, and once and for all, we are reunited with God forever. There's something sexual about that. <laughs> Don't think about it too much. <laughs> 
But that's where it's coming from. And your sex drive does so much more than just make you want to have sex. It makes you passionate about a sunset. It makes you love that awesome music. It's those feelings you get when something is just amazing. And so the issue is not cutting your sex drive out. The issue is you being responsible with it before God so you can live the life He wants you to live. Sex that has no connection, commitment, or faithfulness in it is selfish, is empty, is something that begins to corrode our humanity. And this is why we need healing, sexual healing in a broken world. Because we do this thing with sex where we make it into something, we manipulate it and contort it into something it is not meant to be. We try and find in it our, all our meaning. We use it to cover hurt and loneliness, and insecurity, and rejection, and abandonment. We use it to make ourselves feel powerful and strong. We use it to make other people do things. All of that is manipulation. And when we manipulate something like that, when we take a pure, awesome gift of God and we manipulate it like that, we will damage ourselves. We will absolutely damage other people. And so when we're watching Netflix and it's telling us, just do whatever you want to, with whomever you want to, when, whoever you want to, it isn't telling you what the consequences of that are going to be. There's no documentary I've watched that helps us with that. But the Bible does. Jesus does. And we're going to look at the church in Corinth because they... Um, came with a whole lot of sexual brokenness. <laughs> they were very unique in the New Testament for one single reason. They, have, they are comprised predominantly of pagan heathens who became Christian. Pagan heathens who Paul preached the gospel to and spent time with and loved and started discipling, and they formed this church. But what I, why this is important is because their religion before Christianity was a whole polytheistic mishmash of idolatry, a whole mix of Greek and Roman idols and temples. And worship in those days in the temples was predominantly through sex because they also believed the lie that the orgasm was the highest possible human experience. And they turned it into something that was sacred, or they tried to. But it was so perverted because every temple had prostitutes, temple prostitutes, if you've ever heard that term, this is what it's talking about, who were actually priests and priestesses hired in the church, and, sorry, not the church, <laughs> the temples, the pagan heathen temples. We, we do not hire prostitutes at the church. It's a good thing you're on the front row, Rico. Just, yeah, keep, keep, it, keep it tidy, right? Um, and so if you wanted to go worship at one of those temples, you would make use of it. And it was all kinds of weird things like the spirit of the God would, would possess the priestess and it was just nightmares. It was becoming one with the divine, right? But that was women, men, underage children, sometimes even animals, which is so shocking to us, right? But this was their daily life. This was their worldview. This was their culture. And so they get born again. Yay, the gospel is amazing. But they're brand new Christians, and they come into the church, and they bring their worldview with them. And as a pagan, if you could have sex with it, you did have sex with it. Simple as that. And so Paul writes the whole book of Corinth 
to address problems, to address issues. And the most amazing thing is that his solution to every single problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, he writes to them, and he says to them, um, I'm just trying to find it. He tells them, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that is caused by sexual misconduct. If you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to the love and grace of Jesus Christ. See, I don't have to do it for myself. All that stuff I'm trying to force sex to give me, it's actually in Jesus. And before we carry on, you have some books that I would really love for you to read. The first one, Seven Myths About Singleness. Before we get there, the author of all these books, if you can see, is Sam Albury. Sam Albury is amazing. He's a theologian. He's also a gay, celibate Christian. He is a pastor of a church in England. He has been for about 25 years, and he is a theologian. And these books are amazing. The only book I've ever read on singleness is this one. It's the best book I've ever read on singleness. If you're going to read one book on singleness, this is the one to read. And one of the myths he addresses in that is that I waste my sexuality when I'm single. And it is the best theological treatise of why we wait till marriage for sex and what the purpose of sex is. He then took that chapter and he wrote a whole theological book called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? It is amazing. Now, let, let me not scare you. Why I'm recommending these books, he is British, right? He's got a dry sense of humor. He talks in such natural language. He takes deep theological understanding, and he just makes it very simple and very applicable. I'm busy listening to that one, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. I'm listening to it on the audiobook, and it is amazing. It is theology about our physical body. And even though he's not trying to um, make the whole book about it, in one of the chapters he does address the whole transgender issue. And honestly, this is the most powerful thing I've ever heard from a theological perspective of us as Christians to help answer that question. It's really powerful. And I want to say this to you. As leaders, we're trying to have this discussion. We're figuring these things out. And we would love your input. If you've got any questions, if you've got opinions, if you've got thoughts, come and speak to us, okay? We're going to figure it out together. And then lastly, this one, Is God Anti-Gay? is actually a little pamphlet he wrote, a booklet he wrote. But I, I saw on um, Amazon that he's actually turning that into a full book about what God thinks about people with a homosexual orientation and how they can live as Christians. It's going to be amazing. So please, if any of that is, in, is your situation, read it. And I would just encourage you to read all these books. They are really, really great. But Paul writes about the, to the Corinthian Christians, and he writes to us today about how we can find sexual healing in a broken world. And we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do not, 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, and neither the sexually immoral. Now, Jack, <laughs> I keep calling them Jackie and Zess, and that's not going to happen tonight. <laughs> Zach and Jesse just did such an amazing job last week. Can we just give them a hand, Jesse, in her absence tonight? She's on a work trip. You guys are amazing. And they spoke about purity, and they helped us understand that purity is not just about abstinence. Purity is about an attitude of our heart. It's about how we conduct ourselves before God and before other human beings, before ourselves. And even in their talk, though they, they kind of centered it in the, in the talk about sex, the reality is that purity of heart is something we need in every single area of our lives if we have made Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. It's not an option. And so we shouldn't just think that purity is just sex. It's our whole life, Okay. And they, they spoke from Thessalonians, and in that, the scriptures that they used, the word sexual immorality came up, right? So we get this question a lot as possible. Where does the Bible forbid us to have sex? <laughs> well, this is the word it uses over and over again, sexual immorality. You will find sexual immorality as a phrase hundreds of times in the Bible. I'm exaggerating. But a lot of times in the Bible, it's in this scripture, right? So what is sexual immorality? So let me help you, because this is the next question that we get asked so often. I got asked it twice this year alone, Zach. How far can I go? Now, here's the problem with that question. The second you're asking how far can I go, you've already gone too far. Yeah. That's for free. That actually isn't the problem. The real problem is, is you don't care about purity. Can you see? You just want gratification. You believe the Netflix documentary and you're trying to put the gospel in there instead of the other way around. So, how far can you go? Not very far at all. Simple as that. So let me help you. I think the issue and the reason people are asking is because sex, if you look it up in the dictionary, will tell you that it's about penetration. Now, there are words that mean that exclusively that are synonyms for sex. Copulation, coitus, sexual intercourse. You can have social intercourse. It's completely acceptable for Christians. That's when we hang out and fellowship and talk to each other. Copulation, coitus, and sexual intercourse is penetration. That's what those words mean. But anything else that we do that begins to mimic that act is sex. It's sexual activity. Anything. And it varies from person to person. Some of you can hold hands and sit close and cuddle, and it doesn't start mimicking any of the copulation, coitus, or sexual intercourse. Some of you hold hands and it starts mimicking. <laughs> so know yourself. In Ephesians, Paul writes about sexual immorality. He says this, there shouldn't even be a hint not even a hint. Say it with me. Not even a hint. It's fun to say. Let's say it again. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. Not all of you wanted to say the last part. Dear Lord Jesus, help us. And so, when you read the word sexual immorality in the Bible, it's from here all the way over there to copulation, coitus, 
and sexual intercourse. Do you get me? So next time you read the word sexual immorality in your Bible, it's everything. And it's your personal stuff. Just because your friends can kiss each other a little bit and not fall into sin, but you are going to, uh-uh. Know yourself. So what is he saying? He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greed, the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, as I've been meditating on this portion of Scripture, I was so absolutely struck by how thoroughly and completely and utterly Paul is convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ has everything we need for righteousness and salvation. He is convinced to the core of his being that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the answer to every human problem, every human situation, every possible thing you can conceive that might be a problem for a human being. Paul believes the gospel has the answer. Every problem, including the sex problem that he addresses in the book of Corinthians, he is solved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, throughout the book of Corinth, he writes to them and he commends them for their faith. He commends them for their trust in Jesus. But he also teaches them and corrects them in all the misunderstandings they have from their pagan worldview by teaching them the gospel. Because of his absolute trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring healing and wholeness, he is very practical about it. So look, it's a pretty tough thing, hey? If you're unrighteous, if you're sexually immoral, if you're any one of these things, you don't go to heaven. But there's no shouting. There's no screaming. There's no coming down with judgment from the heights. There's just the facts. This or Jesus. He says, give me Jesus. So Paul writes quite a number of lists of sin in the Bible. <laughs> I try to find out how many lists he got, but Christians don't seem to care about that. All they seem to care about is how many sins are listed throughout the New Testament. And the longest list I found had 124 sins in them. But this is not an exhaustive list. None of the lists are exhaustive. I think even the 124 they've extrapolated are still not exhausted at the range and creativity of human depravity. <laughs> this list is not exhaustive. And this list, and this is so important, is not graded. This list doesn't go from best to worst or from worst to best. This is a list of the problems Paul thinks are happening in the Corinthian church, and he's trying to be practical to where they are. In this list, there are three sexual sins. There's sexual immorality, which now you understand is everything from here to way over there, right? You got that? It's adulterers, and it's homosexuality. But those three sins are included in a list that we might think has everyday sins. You see, we grade sins, and we think that we know what the worst one is and what the best one is. And usually the worst one is the one that we think is the worst, and we think the best one is the one that we're trapped in. God doesn't do that. 
God doesn't grade sin. God knows that sin separates us from Him. Now hear what I'm saying. Sin separates us from Him. It doesn't separate Him from us. And the issue of sin is anytime we disagree with God in anything, it's sin. In fact, the New Testament definition of sin is anything that has no faith. What does that mean? Anything without faith is sin. It says that. But what does that mean? Well, anything I can't do in front of Jesus is sin. Because God can only bless righteousness. He will only bless righteousness. His presence will only sit on righteousness. And so there's a whole lot of stuff we justify in the name of the Bible and God because some pastor said we could, or we just made it up in our head that some pastor said we could. And God isn't there. If you can't do it in front of Jesus, it's sin. And it separates us from him, not him from us. Because you see, God has made a covenant with us. If you put up your hand and you willfully, with all your free will, with all your choice, said, Jesus, I want you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. The second we did that, God took it so seriously, he made a covenant. He said, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, that's a marriage. Sex is a prophetic picture of our marriage to Jesus. There it is. There it is. No condition. You will be my people and I will be your God. No condition. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, that might be the only conditionless promise in the whole Bible. We love doing these things as Christians where we stand on the promise and we never fulfill a condition. And we've got it so backwards because the condition is always relationship. God doesn't care about your performance or your effort. He couldn't care less. But he wants your love. He wants your relationship. And then we get so frustrated with God because I've stood on the promise and nothing's happening. And God's saying, fulfill the condition. Because the promise is guaranteed. If this, then that. I started praying, Lord, help me to fulfill the condition. Help me to love you more, to trust you more, to be present with you more, to give you more of myself. But this is conditionless. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So as I said, there are three sexual sins in this list that include a whole lot of sins we never ever take altar calls for. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing now. Let's go back this way. You've got the whole sermon, you can go home. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's, let's look at the list again. So what do we have in this list? We've got, oh, I need to go back to the scripture. We've got, okay, so we've discussed sexual immorality. You get what that is. We've got idolatry, right? Idolatry is anything I put between myself and God, anything I, that is more important to me than God, anything I go to for comfort or pleasure or security or identity before I go to God. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Adultery. If you are married, adultery is sex you have with somebody who is not your partner. Now remember, from here all the way over there, anything. 
There's also something called emotional adultery, which is where your wife is mean, so you find somebody at work to share all your problems with. And your wife isn't mean. You need to sort out your deal, right? Or your husband. He's not mean. You just need to sort out your deal. And I realized once in counseling, somebody came to me, and the issue was adultery, but, you know, we do this thing sometimes where we don't want to offend people, right? So he had these one-night stands, and as we were talking about it, I said to him, so what do you think having affairs, and I just used the word affairs, and he said to him, oh, no, no, it's not an affair. I said, oh, what is it? And he said, no, I only sleep with them once. <laughs> yeah, and we're laughing, but this is what we do as human beings, because I realized in his mind, the fact that he only sleeps with one woman once doesn't feel like a constant same woman. He thinks it's a different category. So I repented to him, and I repented to the Lord. I said, I'm so sorry. The Bible calls it adultery. Whether it's one time or over 16 years, the Bible calls it adultery. And that's helped me. And when we're dealing with our sin, we need to call it what the Bible calls it. It's not written to shame us. It's written to help us understand where we're at and give us strategies so we don't live like that anymore. Because when I justify and pretend... I just get myself in trouble. I damage myself and I damage others. And then it includes homosexuality. That's the next one. Now, the way it's written here, it's using two Greek words, men who practice homosexuality. And remember I spoke about the temple prostitutes before? Well, this category includes that. It's basically the passive and the active partner, okay? And so the first word talks about people who are used sexually or sell themselves sexually. And it even has the connotation of people who've been sexually abused, okay? Or manipulated, or coerced, or seduced, or whatever. And it's not just men. And I love that this word is actually there, because there are some of us sitting in this room tonight who are carrying all kinds of shame and wrecked identity because of stuff that has happened to us. I'm one of them. I've been sexually abused. I know what you're talking about. And there's this thing that we do when we're sexually abused where we think it's us. And the only way we can make sense of it is to internalize it as us. And what I'm here to tell you tonight is you are not what happened to you. In the eyes of God, God sees everything. God knows better than you who you are. And you are not what happened to you. Whatever happened, you are not what happened to you. And there's healing, and there's hard work to do, because you've got to undo all that shame before the Lord and let him into those spaces and watch him heal. I'm a testimony of that. Some of you think I'm being super vulnerable. I am, but I'm totally healed. It's not who I am. Not who I am. And of course, there are consequences that last, but it's not who I am, and it's not who you are. And then the second word, and this is where this word practice becomes so important. It's not there by accident. And these are people who, who feel like all they want, their only sexual attraction is homosexual. They only want to have sex with people of the same sex. And what this is talking about is that all sin is practice, right? The practice is the sin. Let me set some of you free. Being tempted is not sin. Being tempted is telling you what your issue is, and helping you figure out your strategies before you go to the practice. 
And so there are people on this earth, and we do not know. I, I was reading articles a few years ago, and two major um, medical universities, one of them, the Mayo Clinic, suspended studies trying to find the gay gene or the gay brain or, or anything like that. There's no conclusion to that. So we don't know why some people have homosexual orientation. It's an orientation. And an orientation is not a sin either. Remember I told you that Sam Albury is a gay Christian? Some of you had a little moment. <laughs> you didn't, your faces just kept doing this. But you had a little moment. He's a celibate gay Christian who loves Jesus with all his heart. What is he talking about? He's saying that his orientation is exclusively homosexual. But he's saying his life is submitted to Jesus Christ. You see, some of us in this church think that being homosexual means you're going straight to hell. That's not at all what it means. Jesus tells us this beautiful parable in the New Testament. Maybe you've heard it. It's two men praying. One of them is a poor man. One of them is a priest, the highest of the high in Jewish culture. And they're praying. And Jesus says this is what they were praying. The rich, holy man prayed and said, God, thank you that I am not like this sinner, that I am holy and righteous. And the sinner is praying, God, I'm so sorry I'm a sinner I don't want to be that way. Will you help me? Whose prayer is God listening to? Jesus asks them, whose prayer is God listening to? And all the rich, self-righteous Pharisees know the answer. So let me ask you this. Somebody with a homosexual orientation who is living pure and righteous, seeking after God and dealing with them temptation or a straight person who just does whatever they want to do, who's holy? Yeah, clap, clap. Guys, you've got to understand this. Being straight is not being holy. Being straight is not being right. If you're not living for Jesus, and there are people out there struggling with things, they don't want them in their lives, and they come to the church because we're supposed to have the answers, and we do but we don't bother figuring it out. And I want to tell you tonight that whatever you are struggling with, whatever is your thing in this list of sins, Jesus accepts you. Jesus is willing to take you. He will take you. And guess what? We are a church who will take you. Come. Whatever you are struggling with in this list, come. Absolutely come. Because we are all struggling. And we are all dealing. But there is a crunch. And here's the crunch, that at the end of this thing, um, Paul says, for that is what you were. That is what some of you were. I haven't spoken about revilers and thieves and greed. I, I will tell you, I once shoplift when I was nine. <laughs> I feel the shame of that. The shopkeeper caught me and beat me. It was the late 70s. He beat my bum. And he told me, this is bad. If you do this, you'll go to jail. And I'm so grateful. Because I never did it again. And so I haven't gone to jail. In case you think you're not in this list, let's talk about greed. Wanting something you don't have with an absolute passion to the point where you'll even hate other people who have it. Mm. Revilers. The word revile means to slander. It means to gossip. It means verbal abuse. 
The word swindler is to get money or goods out of people by cheating them. It's fraud. It's lying. I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard a lot about the Tinder swindler. Maybe you are more in this list than you thought at the beginning. But like I said, we are all dealing with something. And the, the issue is this. Why did I ask you in the beginning, who would you most identify with? Because that's what this list is about. You see, Paul is saying to them, and such were some of you. What he's saying is before Jesus, we all identified here. And what happens with sin is, because this is shame, right? We start identifying ourselves. Either we identify ourselves with people so they will never see our shame, or we jump headfirst into the shame to prove everybody else we don't care. Now, when I shoplifted, I had a choice. Was I going to identify with thieves? Was I going to call myself a thief and have some weird version of Oliver Twist and join a group of them? But whether I joined the group or not, was I going to identify myself with them? I didn't, before Jesus, you don't have a choice. You sin. Without Jesus, you just sin. It's either complete um, depravity or it's self-righteousness. We make this whole deal about freedom like it's this magical thing that eventually one day rests on us. Here is freedom. The second Jesus Christ became your Lord and Savior, you knew the difference between right and wrong. And now you have the choice. See, before Jesus, there's only depravity and self-righteousness. After Jesus, there's doing the right thing. There's righteousness himself. And you know I'm right. You've all sinned this week, and here you're sitting. Lightning did not come out the sky and strike you dead. Because you have free choice. That's your freedom. As Christians, you can choose whether you want to go to heaven or hell. You literally can. I highly suggest we all choose heaven. I'm hoping that's what I'm doing. So we, this is what you were. And it doesn't matter any of that stuff. That is what you were. But now you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so we can no longer identify with anything back there. That is what you were, but now you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. And so washed, 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing is washing. Who showered today? <laughs> Some of you are... <laughs> you were cleansed. You were cleansed. How is confession cleansing? Because the issue of Jesus, what I've just said about freedom, is what? Agreement. Am I agreeing that God is right? Am I agreeing that he knows better than I do? Or am I disagreeing? And we make such a big thing of confession, but confession is just, oh my word, I'm disagreeing with God. I'm so sorry, Lord. I know that that's what's happening. And I'm coming back into agreement with you. That's confession. I'm wrong, you're right. It's the beginning of repentance. And we need to confess our sins to God. We do this thing where we sin, especially sexually, because there's all kinds of weird identity and shame and nonsense that happens. 
I am your God and you are my people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The second you do it, just repent. Confess. I have waited seven months to confess. What happened? Seven months where I just didn't have Jesus. And then things got worse and I did even worse things. Just be quick to confess and make right with him. As I was contemplating the scripture, I was in the shower and it suddenly dawned on me, Jesus is the eternal shower. Never switches off. Never ever switches off. He knows, he knows, he is available. He will cleanse you. And as many times as you need to, he will cleanse you. Eventually we have to move into repentance. But this is where it starts. We are sanctified. Leviticus 11 verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. God is the only holy one, which means God is the only one who can dictate what is holy and what is not. God is the only one who decides what is sin and what is righteousness. Isaiah prophesies and he rebukes leaders. He says, woe to the leaders who make bitter sweet and sweet bitter who make righteousness unrighteous and unrighteousness righteous. God couldn't care what you think. Stop grading your sin. What does he say? But because he is holy, he can make us holy. Hebrews 10.10, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Sanctification means to be made holy. We are in a process. We are made holy by Jesus, but we are in a process of becoming holy. It's a lifelong journey. Don't give up. When you need to confess, you go back, you jump in the shower of Jesus, and then you keep being made holy. Oh, I'm doing the backwards thing again. God hides us in Jesus. This is phenomenal. Colossians 3 verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. You are hidden in Jesus. When God looks at you, he just sees Jesus. How radical is that? Remember the covenant he's made with you. I am your God. You are my people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are hidden in Jesus. Why are we taking so long to, to confess? Romans 8 verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is the process of sanctification. We are conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. For millennials and Gen Z, the second you hear conform, you like have a total <laughs> seizure. But yeah, can I tell you what happens when we conform to Jesus Christ? I know for a fact, Lareko, Zealus, and Zach, and me, we are conforming to the image of Christ. We really want to look like Jesus. And the strangest thing is that the four of us start looking more like Jesus. But the most amazing thing is we start looking more like ourselves. We don't just look alike. We're not some weird cult who all dress the same and just do the same thing. The more we conform to Jesus, the more we just become ourselves. That self-expression of the best kind. And then we resolve to live differently. You see, we can't just give ideological, philosophical agreement. Something's got to change, and we need to see it in our hearts and our minds and our lives. 
And we know the scriptures so well. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. How are we going to know that? The Bible. Read your Bible. Obey your Bible. Argue with your Bible. Fight with your Bible. Receive your Bible. That is the perfect will of God. And washing and sanctification require effort from us. Only God can cleanse us. Only God can sanctify us. And the effort isn't performance, isn't us trying to be better. The effort is receiving. The effort is positioning ourselves. The effort is jumping in the shower. The effort is actually reading your Bible so you can be transformed. You get what I'm saying? But the reason that we can be washed and sanctified is because of this. Because this only God can do. Justification. It means to be made righteous. Colossians 3 verse 3, do you remember what it says? Anybody? Your life is hidden in Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bottom of everything. Without this, we cannot be washed. Without this, we cannot be sanctified. But he has chosen to do this. And so this is how we are sexually healed in a broken world. We are washed. We confess. We are sanctified. We are made holy. We let him make us holy. We transform our thinking through the washing of the word. And we receive the justification. Stop trying in your own strength. Just stop trying in your own strength. Just live here. And I think that is it. So, Father God, yeah, let's just pray. Lord, wow, Lord God, we just thank you for the gift of sex, Lord God. And God, we, we just want to confess to you tonight that every one of us has fallen short somewhere, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that you are not judging us or hating us, Lord God, but that you are an eternal shower that we can jump into and, and be washed in, that we can confess to you and be cleansed, Lord. That we can just, once again, just step into the process of sanctification, just giving our hearts and our lives to you, just submitting to you, that we can absolutely trust in the fact that we have been justified with the sh by the shed blood of Jesus. So wherever you are, what, what do you need to think about tonight? Is it washing? Is it sanctification? Is it just understanding that you are justified? What do you need to talk to the Lord about tonight? Holy Spirit, just come. Just come. I just rebuke the, the loud voice of shame over everybody's heart tonight. You be still right now. And Lord Jesus, just show us what you think about us, what you feel about us, what you want to do inside of each one of us, Lord. And God, where do we need healing? Who among us has been abused, Lord God? Who has been used? Who has been damaged and hurt? God, come. Come and speak your words of life. Come and touch, Holy Spirit. Every heart, every place, every place of shame and guilt, God, we let that go now. You are more than enough, Jesus. You are our God and we are your people. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You are a good husband a good father, a good friend. We ask for that in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.